their progressive vision supported by bigger government. But could there be something deeper at work here? Could our loss of beauty be traced to our sin? In this upcoming series, we will explore three facets of American life where we substitute our dignity for a lesser God. Racism, abortion, and obsession with the body. Today we're going to begin with racism. In this series we've called America the Broken. At the outset, I have to say I feel underqualified to speak on this subject. I simply have had, not had a great deal of experiencing in a personal experience in addressing or dealing with racism. I have been a part of the dominant culture in our country, and I know that makes me vulnerable to a certain blindness or being unable to know how people who are in a minority think and feel. I've tasted it just a little bit when I have traveled overseas, not knowing the language, not knowing the culture, being on the outside looking in is a very humbling experience. And yet, even in the places that I have traveled to, Americans are a fascination. So that experience of being a minority is limited. If you've ever been the only man in a meeting of all women, or more likely, you may have been the only woman in a meeting of all men, that gives you just a small taste of what a person who is in the minority might think or might feel. Now, some of the little experience that I do have comes from watching my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Jessica, she's about 20, almost 28. She has been motivated both by Jesus' great commission and by justice, a desire for justice. And she has a passion for racial reconciliation. And more than talking about it, she moved into a minority neighborhood, seeking to be a bridge. She doesn't have a paternalistic uh, savior mentality. Rather, she is learning to listen and to serve and to live alongside of people not like her, neither economically, nor in background, nor in culture. She is learning to share Christ in the natural rhythms of being a neighbor. And I'm learning by watching her. A couple facts about racism. It's important for us to realize that racism has been a perpetual human problem. Telling the story of nation development and history cannot be told without understanding racism. Majorities oppressing minorities, dominant cultures assuming superiority in intellect, language, and culture. Racism has also been a global problem. It's not localized to one part of the world. All over the world today, racism is striking fear into the hearts of minority cultures. Now, in the world in which we live, there is multifaceted racism. At least the racism that is most dominant in our narrative is black-white racism. 
And in the last several years, racism has exploded back into our consciousness with a terrible vengeance. Not that it ever went away. Well-publicized deaths at the hands of police in Ferguson, Missouri, New York, Cleveland, and Baltimore have resulted in the demand that our justice system be placed under a microscope. In Charleston, South Carolina, on the other side, in a historic black church, a young white man fueled by hatred murdered nine black men and women in cold blood who were attending a prayer meeting. So what I'd like to do this morning is three things with you. I'd like to walk through a little bit of a history of racism, but with a a gospel lens to it. Secondly, I'd like to ask this question. How does the gospel we believe undermine racism? And then thirdly, I want to just quickly look at four simple ideas on how we as a church can make a difference in this world. Will you pray? Pray with me. Father, here we are gathered together as the people of God living and wanting to know your will for our lives in 2015. And as we enter into this series and understand more of what's happening in the world and culture around us, may we be more inspired, more transformed to be Christ to one another and Christ to our neighbors. And I pray that we would have a better understanding of what it means to love your neighbor. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's first talk a little bit about history. For hundreds of years, Africans were kidnapped, separated from their families, divided from their children and spouses, ripped from the land that they knew, and brought to America to work as slaves and provide the backbone for our economic community. It was an evil, unjust system. For dozens of years in the early 1800s, this issue was fiercely debated and reached a tipping point in South Carolina when that state refused to obey a federal order. The tipping point resulted in the Civil War, a bloody war in our fields, in our forests, in our streets that produced untold vast carnage. 620,000 soldiers did not return home dying from combat, accident, starvation, and disease. Was the Civil War a judgment from God for the systemic tearing up of families and enslaving a whole race of people? A strong argument can be made for that. The Civil War ended, the Civil War ended government-endorsed slavery. But it did not end racism. Racism became openly institutionalized in the South through Jim Crow laws, keeping the races separate but equal. That that system continued to protect the privileged classes while oppressing African Americans. African Americans continued to suffer from lynching, well into the 1900s, from lynching, injustice, 
humiliating treatment, loss of economic opportunities, all those things were the norm for millions of black Americans. In the North, racism was more covert, such as routing blacks away from certain neighborhoods. Then a series in the 1900s, a series of pivotal events caused Americans to take a long, long look in the mirror. The first was this. Soldiers and nurses, men and women, black and white, returning from World War II, freshly sensitized to the evils of racial oppression. Secondly, another significant event involving Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey was at that time the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. If you did not know it, Branch Rickey comes from Ohio. He went to school at Ohio Wesleyan here just north of us. He was motivated, at least partially, from his religious convictions. He joined with Jackie Robinson, and they integrated baseball at a time when baseball captured the nation's collective imagination. Thirdly, in 1953, the Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson overthrew racial segregation that separated blacks and whites in schools. That led to a famous showdown under the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower in 1954 in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the governor of Arkansas defied the federal order and blocked little black, little and, I'm sorry, black children, little and larger, elementary and middle age and high school, blocked them from attending a previously all-white school. You might remember the video clip that we showed some time back from this story. It told the story of an amazing little girl named Ruby. That clip included actual footage of moms and dads, Caucasian moms and dads cursing and yelling and threatening her life. Ruby was maybe five or six years old. The disturbing part is that these frenzied moms and dads appear to be everyday moms and dads who attend PTA meetings, coach Little League, and and attend church. They could have been you or me. Ruby, on her part, if you remember the story, braved the angry mob and expressed forgiveness for her haters, repeating the words of Jesus as she was on the stoop heading into the church building, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. The fourth event, the next event, was Martin Luther King and his mobilization of blacks practicing nonviolence based on the words of Jesus. King was convinced that racism was so entrenched that incremental change or intellectual persuasion was bound to fail and would only serve to enable the evil of our system. His assassination, along with Robert F. Kennedy's, cemented the need for change that came with the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Now, the Civil Rights Act vastly improved the condition for many black Americans and opened up new opportunities. Indeed, Barack Obama, notwithstanding what you think of his politics, is still a testament to how much things have improved. 
Yet, if nothing else, the last few months served to, as a reminder to us that justice can only go so far. Laws, coercion by the government, can only go so far. Justice by force of law is limited. It can change behaviors because we want to avoid punishment or or social embarrassment, but it cannot change hearts. One pastor friend commented, justice can bring elbows together, but it cannot bring hearts together. Racism continues today. And the church's record on this is very mixed. There are high points. As we've often pointed out when we've described Jesus' positive impact on the world, parts of the abolitionist movement here, Wilberforce ending the slave trade in Britain, our Christian missionaries who have been a champion of women and children across the world. But if churches only focus on converting souls and not exposing and changing evil systems, Christianity is cheapened and becomes a lifeless shell. John Piper wrote a book called Bloodlines recently, where he talks about his early church experience growing up in an all-white evangelical church in the South in the 50s and the 60s and early 70s. He describes with great sorrow the subtle but very real racism of his church. More recently, a blind research study was conducted by a group of Christian sociologists. They found that some churches, some groups of churches, were less receptive to new guests attending their church if they perceived they were a person of color. The author of this study, Brad, this is by, again, this is, a, this is published in the most recent uh, article, most recent edition of Christianity Today. So this is a 2015 study. Bradley Wright, who published, who uh, did the study, in 2010, he published a book called Christians Are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies That You've Believed. In this book, Bradley Wright uh, examines the common points of criticism that are often directed toward evangelicals. He showed that many of these critiques were either overstated or flat-out wrong, except for race. Reviewing the studies, he concluded that as a group, evangelicals have a race problem. Now, I hope it's not true of us. I don't believe that's true of us. I hope it's not true of us. But to the degree that it is true of the Christian church, this is terribly sad and is a travesty. Why? Because when when the gospel is believed, when the story of Jesus gets inside of us, it surgically removes what the legal system never can. It undermines the hate 
and the fear and the competitiveness that racism runs on. I'd like now to walk us through some things that you know, but I want to look at it through the prism of race. I'd like to just answer this question. How does the gospel undermine racism? Let's walk through the five elements of the gospel, okay? How does the gospel undermine racism? Here's the first thing. We begin with the gospel with creation. This is the beginning. The beginning of the gospel does not begin with the story of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel is creation itself. And here's a fascinating verse from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. He says this, from one man, he, God, created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Here's a very simple, basic truth. We are created by God, and thus we all share a common ancestor. The basis of human rights and dignity is not something the state can give or the state can take away. Your worth and the worth of your neighbor is built on a more permanent foundation. We are all part of the same human family, regardless of your color or your ethnicity. Secondly, the Genesis account of creation teaches that God made every person in his image and our purpose is to make him known. That's what image bearers do. They bear the image of someone else. That's our purpose. We have his signature. We have his thumbprint upon us. And that ties us together into a human family. It also means that we are all each individually Here's what the doctrine of creation teaches. Not just that we're all one human family, but we're also uniquely and mysteriously and individually created with God's particular thumbprint upon us. The psalmist wrote, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Being created in God's image leaves no basis for stereotyping or overly simplistic categories. Could there be a stronger motivation for the just treatment of every human being than the fact that they are made in God's image? Proverbs 14.31 ties this together seamlessly in a warning saying, those who oppress the poor, those who oppress the poor insult their maker. Jesus, with positive force, said it this way, What you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Now, that's how creation undermines racism. What's the next part of the gospel story? The next part after creation is sin and fall. And the simple reality is that sin is not exclusive to one race or ethnic group. Can we all agree on that? Sin is not exclusive to one race or one ethnic ethnic group. Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We are one in our corruption. No one can claim any special moral high ground or gaze on someone else with contempt. Any feeling of moral superiority by one nation, by one race, by one ethnic group 
is merely self-delusional. Third in the gospel message is Christ's death. Christ died to reconcile all things. Christ died to bring harmony between us and God, between each other, and even the human race with creation. We look now and all we see in the world is separation. Even the created world works against it, against us, and we against it. The purpose and the end of Christ's death begins with those who believe in Christ being reconciled to God. But the salvation God gives is not only individual, it is also corporate. God's plan is to pull everything together under Christ. Not in nameless uniformity, but in a unity that prizes distinctions and yet harmonizes every created thing under the name of Christ. Here's one scripture that teaches this. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Let me read this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. In the immediate context, God was pulling together ancient enemies, Jews and Gentiles, into a single body, into a single house. In Ephesians, Paul wrote that God is uniting all things in and around Christ. And so the greatest single reconciliation is for us to come home to God and to be forgiven, brought to peace with the one that we fought against, the one that we have run from. And when we are truly reconciled to him, then we are powerfully emboldened and free to become peacemakers with others. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. When we are peacemakers, we uniquely reveal our sonship to God the Father. Fourth thing, the gospel becomes real and personal to us. How? It comes to us through faith. We are all in the same spiritual condition before God. We are all spiritually helpless. We cannot save or justify ourselves. We could never do enough things to save ourselves. We're helpless, powerless before God. We cannot, God. we cannot give God five reasons, four reasons, three reasons, two reasons, or even one reason why we are worthy of his offer of forgiveness. Therefore, because of this, we have no capacity to establish or to believe in some distinctive, some source of pride, some way of saying that we as a race or a class are any better than anybody else. Because we are not saved through some distinctive distinction of ourselves. 
We're only saved by the grace of God. Paul said to the Philippian church, It is right for me to love you, to feel the way I do. We, because why? We all share in the same grace. It doesn't matter that I'm a leader or I'm a spiritual authority. Before God, we're all on the same level. We're all the same before the cross. The cross has a tremendous equalizing power to it. It undermines the very seeds of racism by saying there is no way we can establish any moral superiority over anybody else. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you don't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Being saved by the mercy of God, we become a child of God only because of his promise, not our personal resolve to be a better person or try harder. That eliminates all boasting. It eliminates all moral pride, which, by the way, is the hardest to detect and the most insidious. Fifth part of the gospel is renewal. It's the restoration of all things. It is a future hope pictured and promised in the resurrection of Jesus. The plan of God making all the diverse fit together perfectly will undoubtedly take place and we will be in awe. We will marvel at it when we see it. When the Apostle John in the book of Revelation was given a vision of the future heaven and he observed the 24 elders and the heavenly beings singing a new song This is what they sang, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. You are worthy, Jesus Christ, to take the scroll. The scroll was the plan of God, the decrees of God, the will of God. You are worthy to take that scroll and to break its seals and to open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests to our God, for our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is the vision. Heaven represented by every people group, from every nick and cranny of the world. When the vision of renewal permeates the way we live life here, it becomes quite clear there simply is no way for racism to exist in the heart of any believer. It simply cannot be. It must not be. And yet there's even more to this vision. In Revelation chapter 21, close to the end of the Bible, John saw this. He says in verse 24, The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day because there is no night there, and all nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. In this vision, John sees kings and nations coming into the gates. These are the tribes and nations and peoples represented in chapter 5. They are coming in. Capture this. It appears that they are coming in all of their cultural diversity and racial diversity. And that diversity is welcomed and it is celebrated by the king of kings. 
These people are not faceless. They are not homogenized. They are not blended into an indistinguishable whole. John here actually repeats some of the language from Isaiah 60, which also uh, pictures a renewed earth. Together, a new race is formed, united for eternity under Christ. All division, all the drive to find a way to justify ourselves by how we look or how we speak simply melts away. Will we forever retain our distinctions of race and culture and language through eternity? I'm not sure on that one. We're not told. But because God himself is three in one. God is one with three distinct persons. And because God delights in making the diverse one, it would not surprise me if in heaven we retained our beautiful diversity. We'll see, won't we? So, Creation, sin, reconciliation by the cross, grace coming through faith, restoration. This is authentic belief in the gospel. And when it penetrates us, it ought to undermine any and every form of racism that exists in our hearts. So, lastly, let's look at this final question then this morning. Just have a few minutes to spend on this. How then can the church address racism in our culture? I want to just give you four things and try to give you a little story for each. So again, I'm going to have to be brief here. I do think we can make a difference. I do think the church can make a difference. In our particular zip code, the area where we live and serve, about 40,000 people in our particular zip code, Caucasian, white Caucasian people represent about 75% of that population. It would be beautiful. It would be pleasing to God if in the next years of our church life, if our church represented our surrounding community, which is about 25% people of color. Now, I know it's much easier said than done. And I know it's not only about attitudes. There are a lot of dynamics that must go into that. It's not easy, but I think it's a dream that we can, we can attain. But let me share four things that you can practice and we can practice where we live and work on a daily basis. Number one, by standing against systemic injustice. Ephesians 5 says that we are to expose evil. And a little story here told by Tim Keller. Tim Keller tells a story of a, of a, a gentleman, a man, a white man, who owned a successful car business. And he has some suspicions about the way that his salespeople were dealing with the various races that came in to purchase a car. And so he conducted a little study. I'm not quite sure how he did it. But he came to conclude that white men walked away with the very best deals of the cars that were negotiated and sold. White males did better than black males. And worst of all were black women. Black women walked out of his car dealership with the worst deals. And so this man, as a follower of Jesus, said something's wrong with that. There is a systemic 
insidious injustice that's happening here around my desk when my salespeople are negotiating. And so he implemented a course of changes, a way of dealing with that systemic injustice. He lost profit, he lost money, but he felt so much better about his business. In your world that you live and you work, are you aware of the possibilities of systemic injustice in your system that might be affecting minority cultures? And is there something that as a follower of Christ that you have the power to make a change in? That's one thing that we could all become sensitive and aware to. Secondly, by abandoning a savior mentality. I mentioned this about my daughter. The issues of race relations do overlap with economic inequalities. They do involve economic disparities. I love the story told by Bob Lupton. He's a white man, but he's been doing urban uh, racial reconciliation ministry for 40 years in the Atlanta area. And he told a wonderful, a very challenging story that, that gets at some of our problems with this. And the story is told about the uh, churches, uh, white suburban churches in Atlanta, that were going into the inner city of Atlanta. And at Christmas time, they were doing Christmas giveaways to urban families of color in, in, in Atlanta. And they noticed something after a couple of years. They noticed that when they came to the door with all of the toys and so forth that they were giving, they noticed there were never any dads around. And it was a little irking to people. They felt like the whole family should be there, and they wanted the whole family to express some gratitude. And uh, so, fortunately, this particular ministry didn't give up, but they did a little bit more researching and a little bit more, actually it was Bob Lupton's ministry that was, that was organizing and coalescing these white suburban churches with, with, with uh, black uh, urban churches. And they realized something. Now, if you put the shoe on the other foot for a moment, I want to speak to you dads for a second. I want you to imagine you're a dad in an urban family that because of the lack of economic opportunity, because of the lack of skill sets for whatever reason, you can't provide a decent Christmas for your family. Dads, how would that make you feel? if you couldn't provide a decent family for your children. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder why you come, why white folks coming in with all these gifts, is it any wonder why a dad would feel such incredible hurt and disappointment and shame emasculated in that context? And so what this ministry did, they said, you know, what we're doing is disempowering. What we're doing is disempowering. And so what they did was they gathered together all of these gifts that the the white suburban churches were providing, and they created a store, and they sold all of these gifts at discounted prices so that moms and dads together in urban families could come into that store and purchase gifts for their own children so that those moms and dads could provide their own Christmas for those children. Raise the dignity. Raise understanding. 
Again, when we enter into situations with a paternalistic attitude, a savior mentality, we only make it worse. And so we've got to do soul searching in terms of our own, sometimes the way that we approach people of color or people where there's a a distinct economic inequality. Third, we need to rethink our assumptions. Some of us have, have got some assumptions that we just, we've got to be willing to rethink. Again, John Piper tells the story. This is a, uh, an older example, but John Piper tells the story of what he believed the reason, why he believed the separate but equal uh, was so prolific in the South. He believed that the separate but equal status in the South was fueled by one primary motivation, and that was intermarriage between the races. If little black boys and little white girls hung out together, they would eventually grow to love each other, and they would eventually grow to marry. John Piper, who's a very famous uh, evangelical preacher, did his doctrinal thesis on how the Bible does not teach against racial intermarriage. And he had to rethink something that was so ingrained, an assumption so ingrained in him. But he had to look at it again in the light of what Scripture teaches. You know, one of the assumptions that we have when race comes up, when people of color complain or when they, when they express their view on things not changing, a lot of us say, well, can't you just get over it? Why don't, you know, hey, the Civil Rights Act happened in 1964. Can't you just get over it? Friends, I got to tell you, that's one of the most naive, hurtful statements that we can make. We got to rethink our assumptions. For me, this hits so clearly when I went to Kiev, Ukraine, in the mid-90s. And in Kiev, Ukraine, we were talking to 17 and 18 and 19-year-olds hearing their story, you know, and if you walked around Ukraine in the 90s, everybody walked like this. I mean, nobody smiled. All their heads were down. And we got nestled alongside some of these young people and heard their stories and said, like, why, why is that? And, and virtually, not everybody, but, but, but many of the young people we talked to told us stories. Yeah, uh, The KGB came to my grandparents' house and they took my grandfather and we never saw him again. Uh, Those kinds of stories, they live generation to generation. They're passed down to the next generation. They impact the psyche of an individual. Friends, do you realize, for your black friends, many of them have stories about their grandparents and their great-grandparents growing up in the South Do you not think those stories still impact them to this day? Of course they do. When we say, just get over it, we reflect our naivety. We reflect the fact that we have lived, many of us, as the privileged class. There is an aspect where we just don't get it. These kind of things, by the way, do keep our churches. They inhibit our churches from expanding and being more racially diverse. Number four, I got to keep going here. Number four, how can we make a difference by listening? By listening. 
by getting alongside and by listening. Story is told that the police force in, in New York City, you know why it began? The police force in New York City in the 1800s, you know why it, it sprang to life? How many of you are Irish? Anybody here Irish? A few of you. The New York City police force sprang to life because of the Irish. They were bad. And there were, and so what happened was there were Irish policemen, there were Irish judges, <laughs> there were Irish prosecutors, there were Irish defense attorneys, and in 20 years they cleaned it up. They cleaned it up. What's our situation today? The reality of our justice system, this is not implicating any single individual, but the reality of our justice system is our justice system is typically operated by white people living in the suburbs and often adjudicating cases for black men and women living in the urban city. They simply, there is simply an understanding gap. It's not to say anyone's acting evil. It's not to say anyone's acting in a wrong way. It's simply to say there is a tremendous gap in our understanding. And part of that way is by we can listen. My daughter encouraged me. One of the best things you can say to a person of color when maybe you're having trouble understanding where they're coming from is these three words. Help me understand. Help me understand why you feel the way you do. Help me understand where you're coming from and then listen. Last thing I want to say with this, I think another way that we can, we can make a difference in this is I, in, in diving into this subject, I've realized that there's a lot of self-righteousness on both sides. <laughs> there's a lot of self-righteousness on both sides of the coin. And you see, it's the gospel that changes us. It's the gospel that uproots self-righteousness. Because we realize, don't we, in the end, that he who loves much has been what? What were the words of Jesus? He who loves much has been forgiven much. It is the gospel that uproots our self-righteousness. It is the gospel that will help make the dialogue on this topic less inflamed and more humane and more civil. We can make a lot of difference simply by living the gospel out in our neighborhood and our places of work by having an awareness that wherever we interact with people who find themselves distinctly in the minority, showing the gospel by our speech and actions and revealing the mercy of Christ will have an impact. And maybe in the future, this church as well will reflect the diversity in our immediate community. Pray with me.